All right. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and pray together. Heavenly Father, you are at work in and among the lives of so many people, so many different situations, from tragedies, Lord, to exhilarations, opportunities, and missions, things that you put before us during the day in traffic or accidents that bring us to you, Lord. But none of them are accidents. They're all appointments. And we're so grateful, Father, for the way you prove yourself over and over, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Lord, our hearts are energized by what we've heard. And we realize that you are alive and at work in the midst of your people. And now, Father, for the next several minutes, we turn our hearts, open our minds to you through your word. That once again, as you reveal to us who you are, there's no real other way that we can learn about you and about your plan for us without studying your word. And as we gather, reveal. And as you reveal, may we rejoice in what we hear and be determined to put it into practice as you enable us to do that. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in Spokane, Washington, not all that long ago for a law enforcement chaplaincy meeting. And in the airport in Spokane, as I was flying home, I saw a sign on the wall. It was a poster for Southwest Airlines. It said, buckle up. You're going on an adventure. That caught my eye. I like the idea of adventures. Um, I am personally and have been for the last several months embarked on a new adventure in my life. Uh, quite an adventure indeed. Buckle up. You're going on an adventure. I think that's missing from so many people's lives. Lord, what's next? What do you want to do in my life? What do you want to change in my life? Where am I going? What are you about? Peggy Noonan, who was a former speechwriter for President Ronald Reagan, said something that I copied I want to read to you. She said, it's odd that some Christians see themselves just as the media does, as bland guys in gray suits with gray buzz cuts. They ought to see themselves as young Marlon Brando types on a Harley. For they are the true anti-establishment, the true rebels with a cause. I like that. Rebels with a cause. Now, we've opened to Ephesians 1. I call it the Grand Canyon of Scripture. It's like we're standing on the edge of the canyon and in the introduction, in the last several verses, verses 1 through 7 we covered last week, it's like standing on the rim of the canyon and looking at the purview of all that God has for us. The wealth of the believer, what we have and who we are in Christ. As we mentioned, in Christ is mentioned 27 times in the book. The walk of the believer, once we know who we are, once we know what we have, what do we do with it? How do we put it into practice? The wealth, the walk, and then the warfare of the believer. That's the last part of the book. Once we know who we are, once we know what we have, once we decide to actually put that into practice, we can expect 
to have a good fight from the devil. He's not going to like what we do in terms of obedient lifestyle to the Lord. And so we're going to learn that as we go through this book. In the first seven verses, we saw, we looked into our checkbook, our bank book of heaven. We saw that God chose us in Christ. We saw that God adopted us as his children. We saw that God also accepted us. And we mentioned that it's not we who accept him, it's him who accepts us. We saw that he redeemed us and we saw that he forgave us. Those are the main points in the first seven verses. Now tonight we're going to look in verse 13 and see that he also seals us by the Holy Spirit. Also last week we gave you a word, and Al mentioned it on Sunday, dayenu, that Hebrew word that means it would have been enough. And it comes from the recitation at the Passover meal. If God would have done this but didn't do anything else, it would have been enough. So they said if God would have delivered us from Egypt but not brought us through the Red Sea, it would have been enough. If God brought us through the Red Sea but didn't deliver us onto dry land, it would have been enough. If God delivered us on dry land but didn't keep us for 40 years in the wilderness, it would have been enough. If God kept us for 40 years in the wilderness but didn't bring us into the promised land, it would have been enough. So all of these blessings that were counted, saying at the conclusion of each one, Daye knew it would have been enough. But the truth is, God doesn't just stop with deliverance, but he heaps upon us blessing upon blessing. Overflowing blessing. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, verse 32. If God did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not then with him freely give us all things? So with that, look at the end of verse 7 and into verse 8. He speaks in verse 7 of the riches of his grace. God is rich in his abundant grace, unmerited favor, undeserved blessing toward us. He's rich. Now we're in Christ, remember. The riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. In other words, God has showered upon us blessing after blessing. And that's what this first part of Ephesians is about. It's waking us up to the fact so that we know who we are and what we have in Christ. His blessing continues. It's showered upon us blessing after blessing. Notice something else. Um, I take you to verse 4 and then to verse 7. I'm going to skip around a minute. The Trinity, all three members of the Trinity are involved in this blessing of salvation. In verse 4, the Father chose us. Look at it. Just as he, that is God the Father, chose us in him, that is Christ. Christ is the antecedent in the previous verse. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then look in verse 7. Not only did the Father choose us, the Son redeemed us. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Then notice that it's the Holy Spirit who seals us, verse 13. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
As far as God is concerned, you were saved in eternity past in the mind of God when he chose you for salvation. However, that salvation was activated 2,000 years ago when Jesus became the atonement for you on the cross. However, it wasn't fully realized in you until you yielded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you trusted in the Christ that the Holy Spirit was telling you you need. God chose you before the foundations of the world. Jesus paid for your salvation at the cross, but the Holy Spirit wooed you and brought you to full faith in Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, To have a gospel without the Trinity is like having a rope of sand that cannot hold together. Now tonight, this is what we want to look at. The plan of God, the prayer of Paul. We're going to finish out the chapter. The plan of God, the prayer of Paul. We're going to look a little more deeply, a little more, if you'll allow, cerebrally and then applicationally into what it means for God to choose you. We're going to try to unravel some of those mysteries. But I'll warn you in advance, we're not going to really be able to to do that. And then we're going to look at Paul's prayer. So go back. And look at verse 4. Notice, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now skip ahead to verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will. It brings up a couple of questions. Why did God choose me? Why did God choose you? What merit is there in you? What goodness is there in you that God would stop and say, hmm, in looking at your life, I choose you to be saved. I choose you for salvation. Now, don't be too terribly disappointed when I give you the answer. Here it is. Absolutely none. God sees no merit. God saw no merit and no goodness in you. That's not why he chose you. It's not like God was cruising with his eyes to and fro throughout the earth and his eyes landed on you and you were so irresistible that he said, oh, I couldn't pass you up. You are of such high quality. I have to choose you for my heaven. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. God's choice is not based on your character. It's based on his character. God chose you and God chose moi based on the same reason he chose the Jews in the Old Testament to be his chosen people. Listen to what he says, Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than the other people. You were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath that he swore. That answers the question. Israel would say, why does God love us? Why are we his chosen people? God would answer, I love you because I love you. I love you because I made a choice to love you. It's not based on your irresistibility or the fact that you are a large number of strong people. No, you're a tiny, puny little group of people. But I made a promise. I made an oath to Abraham. And so I am making a sovereign choice to pour out my love upon you, based upon my character, not your character. Let's take it a little further. Again, in verse 5, there's a phrase I want you to look at. 
having predestined us to the adoption as sons to Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Because God wants to. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. You read that, and you probably, if you're honest, say, I don't get it. I don't understand. And I would say to you, join the crowd. You're in good company. But why do we have to understand it all? Isn't it just wonderful to realize that God, in his absolute sovereign power, foreknowledge, etc., decided to choose you? You're in his club. You're one of his kids. And here's what's great. God knew all about you before you even did what you did, thought what you thought, failed how you failed. God knows all about you, but he chose you anyway. God knows all about you, but he chose you anyway. Before Jesus picked Peter to be one of his disciples, do you think Jesus knew that Peter would deny him three times? Absolutely. When he looked at Judas and says, Judas, join my team, be one of my apostles, do you think Jesus knew in advance that Judas would sell him out? Absolutely. Did he know that Thomas, when he was choosing Thomas to be his own, would doubt him? Of course he did. Yet he chose them anyway. He exposed himself, became vulnerable. That's what love does. And brought those men among him. Now they could have pondered, ah, let me figure this out. Did, 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 why did you choose me? Uh, in fact, one time Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And appointed you to bring forth fruit. That's what we're looking at, that truth tonight. Verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather, or in the right time, at the time that God chooses, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Here's the second question. The first question is, why did God choose us? The second question is, how did God choose us? I mean, is it that God just sovereignly chose us? Do I have any part in it at all? I mean, if God is doing uh, the choosing before I'm even born, before the foundations of the earth, and I'm predestined for something, that means I don't have a choice in it at all? And you see, that's an important question, because some people teach what is called irresistible grace which means you don't have a choice in it at all. You can't rebel against God irresistibly drawing you to himself for salvation. It was a done deal with or without your consent. Those are one of the tenets of Calvinism, irresistible grace. Along with that is taught limited atonement. Limited atonement, meaning Jesus Christ only died for the elect. He didn't die for anyone else but the elect. This is how it works, they think. You may have been pre-selected by God for salvation. If you were pre-selected by God for salvation, then Jesus died only for your sins. If you weren't pre-selected for salvation, Jesus didn't die for your sins. You may decide you want to come to Christ or feel like you did, but maybe you, you, you didn't. Maybe it's a false hope. 
Now, you'll see some of these people who really push this out in front of crusades. I've seen them at Billy Graham crusades. I've seen them at Franklin Graham crusades. I've seen them at Harvest crusades where they'll hold up sign. They'll come out of their way to protest evangelism. They don't believe in evangelism. Because they believe if you make an invitation for people to receive Christ, you may be lulling people into a false hope because maybe God didn't choose them. They're coming out in the field weeping and saying, I receive Christ, but maybe God didn't choose them. You're giving them false hope. And so they'll hold up big signs like Graham leads to hell. And trying to keep people from going in. Well, couple years back, I was at one of the Graham Crusades. I think it was in Charlotte or Atlanta. And I was there with Greg Laurie. And I know that they've been protesting his crusade. So they were passing out all these flyers and holding up the sign, Graham leads to hell. So we started engaging in a conversation with these people. And they're passing out all of this literature. So Greg and I asked these fellas, is this free what you're passing out? The guy said, oh, yeah, absolutely free. Just take as many as you want. So he said, really? And we took the entire stack of their literature away from them and ran down the street and chucked it in the garbage can. (laughs) It was our sovereign choice. We felt we were predestined to do it. Now, I have a problem with... I have a problem with that ideology because of the most famous scripture in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And what it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, listen to this, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. His atonement is open to anyone who ever will let him come. But, well, that's worth clapping about, yes. Look at verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ, notice that little phrase, we first trusted in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now we seem to have a tension between two different truths. Truth number one, God's choice. In advance, before you were born. Truth number two, your choice while you're alive. God's choice, your choice. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. That's the age-old debate. Is it God who chooses? Is it I who choose? Couldn't it be both? Why does it have to be one or the other? Here's the deal. In the scripture, there are frequent calls for unbelievers to respond to the call of God. In many places. It's an appeal is made to the choice of individuals who hear a message. John the Baptist's first message and Jesus' first message was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was an appeal for their choice. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Another was Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here's another one. To the leaders, the Jewish leaders, Jesus said, 
You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Appealing to their will. In front of Jerusalem, Jesus said to the Jews, How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her young, but you were not willing. And another one, Revelation 21, Whosoever wills, let him take of the water of life freely. Okay, that's all true. That's right in the Bible. However, the Bible also makes it clear that you can't do it wholly on your own. It's not one side or the other. It's not that you're just chosen by uh, yourself to you choose to do it, but that God does something in advance and in cooperation. Listen to this. Jesus said in John chapter six, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Now, here's the problem. It seems that God's sovereign choice and my choice to choose God and follow him seem like they're opposite and irreconcilable, going in two different directions. From a human perspective, they are. They are opposite, and they do seem irreconcilable. So what's the solution? Let's fight about it. Let's have long theological debates and polarize over it. That's been the historic solution. The problem, as I see it, is that we are dealing with infinite God and trying to understand infinite God once again by our finite minds. We're not going to be able to do it. There's going to have to come a time where we have to go, duh, and admit ignorance because we're dealing with sovereignty here. We're dealing with deity. We have two truths that seem to be opposite, but they're two truths held together in tension. We need them both. There is a thing called an antinomy. Have you ever heard of an antinomy? An antinomy isn't a funny-looking animal. An antinomy is an apparent contradiction between two true conclusions. Both conclusions are true, but both conclusions appear to be contradictory, although they're not. I'll give you an example from physics. Light is an antinomy. It can be shown, there is evidence, that light consists of wavelength. If you know the electromagnetic spectrum, you have short wavelength radiation all the way to very long wavelength radiation, and it's plotted out as to which rays are what. But there is also evidence that light consists of particles. However, although that's true, although there's evidence, it's not apparent how light can both be wavelength and both be particle at the same time, but they are. In physics, it's an antinomy. Truths. Two conclusions that are true, but that seem to be contradictory. The Calvinists, back to this issue, will emphasize the sovereignty of God apart from the choice of man. They won't evangelize. The other theological side, Arminianism it's called, will push the choice of man apart from the sovereign election of God. So what do we do? Here's my solution. Let the tension remain. Relax. Don't worry about it. Don't go to bed tonight saying, I've got to solve it. I've got to solve it. Because you'll go. <laughs> you won't be able to do it. Let the tension remain just like a suspension bridge is held together by two opposing forces. One pulling on this side and one pulling on that side. And as long as those things pull in opposite direction, the bridge stands. Take one of the forces away, it collapses. 
So it is with this theological construct. Let the tension remain because that's exactly what Jesus did. He let the tension remain. Did you know that in one single verse, one sentence, Jesus combines the sovereign election of God and the choice of man? I'm going to read it to you. It's John 6, verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You have election and choice in one verse. So let's not polarize. Let's harmonize. Let's say, yes, God chooses you before you were ever born. But God holds you responsible for the choice that you make. So it's not like we just kind of kick back and sit back and God irresistibly grabs us and says, you're going to be saved. That's not true. Equally not true is that God is hidden and we have to somehow find him. Both of these are true. It's sort of like throwing a rope to a drowning man. You throw a rope to a drowning man. The rope itself won't save. Somebody has to grab a hold of it, the drowning person. But somebody has to be on the other side pulling and bringing that person to shore. So God, by election, draws us, and we, by our own free choice, grab a hold of the rope. And we're dealing with somebody who on the shore knew that we'd do it before we did it. You go, I don't get it. You're in good company. Dwight L. Moody put it this way. He was a simple evangelist. He said, the the whosoever wills are the elect. The whosoever wants are the non-elect. Very, very simple. You might look at it this way. God predestines everyone to be saved. The devil predestines everyone to be damned, and we cast the deciding vote. We cast the deciding vote. Now look at verse 13. We already know that God chose us. He adopted us. He accepted us. He redeemed us. He forgave us. That's the language of verses 1 through 7. Now he sealed us. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee? By the way, notice that it says who, not which or what. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It's a person. He is a person. The Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let me tell you what it speaks of. A seal speaks of two things. It speaks of Ownership, possession, and security. Somebody owns you. God is laying claim to you when it says you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and he's keeping you. In ancient times, a seal was an impress, usually of a ring, on wax or on clay. So if somebody owned an item and it was going to be shipped, he would take and take his signet ring and make an impression on that wax or on that clay it would be shipped but it would have his stamp on it so on the other end somebody who also had the ring of the owner could say this is my master's i bear his ring his signet his impression is on this package so we're laying claim to it and we're making sure that it's kept all the way in this journey because of ownership and security question what kind of impression do you leave on people around you Do you leave the impression that you are stamped with the image of God, the family of God, that people would look at you and say, you've got that stamp on you, don't you? 
It's evident that you belong to him. Now look at another word, verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Literally, down payment. The Holy Spirit is the first installment from God to us. A young couple dreams of owning a home. They save, they scrimp, they put money aside. Then they go in and they sign the documents and they put a down payment. When they put the money down that secures that house and they sign the papers, the down payment means there's more to come. It's a guarantee signing the line, giving the down payment, that they're going to make more payments on that. And that's the idea of this. One day, you're going to be in heaven. One day, soon, I believe, if the Lord doesn't tarry, we're going to be raptured. We're going to be in his presence. We're going to come back with Jesus Christ when he judges the earth. We're going to reign with him for a thousand years in the millennium. We're going to be taken into the eternal state after that. All of that's true. In the meantime, the down payment, the first installment is that the Holy Spirit comes in you, changes you, gives you gifts, involvements in the body of Christ, impact in the world, all of that, that the Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee of the inheritance. Now, the rest of the chapter is Paul's prayer. And uh, having stated about who they are in Christ, what God has done for them. He now prays for them. And here's the theme. Paul is praying for spiritual wisdom, that they would have spiritual wisdom to know God's person, that they would have spiritual enlightenment to know God's plan, that they would have spiritual insight to know God's pleasure, what God enjoys, what our value is to God, And then finally, spiritual understanding to know God's power. William Randolph Hearst spent a fortune on collecting the most exquisite artifacts of art for his homes from around the world. He had a lot of them in storage. He had so many he didn't know what he owned. Story has it that William Randolph Hearst heard of and saw a picture of a very expensive artifact. He said, I've got to have it. And he commissioned his men to go out and search the world, if need be, to find it and purchase it. They came back some time later, sort of their heads hung down, and they said, "Uh, Mr. Hearst, you have owned that artifact for some time now. It's in one of your warehouses. Imagine expending that much energy, time, and money looking for something you already owned. There's a lot of Christians that do that. They're looking for something they already have. They're looking for something that God already has in the treasure house, but they're saying, oh, I want something more. I want something more than the ordinary Christian has, some special experience, some special power. And Paul is saying, oh, Lord, help them to know what they already have. And so he'll pray for it. Verse 15, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now in verse 17, he prays for spiritual wisdom that they would know God's person. That 
the God of our Father, or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The New Living Translation says, so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. You know, the pagans, the pagan world, taught that the gods were unknowable. Distant, aloof, unknowable. The Bible brings God up close. And says, you can know him. Here's the question. Do you know him? Do you really know the Lord? I grew up in a church knowing about him. I knew facts about him. But I didn't know him personally. Second question. How well do you know him? Are you on a first name basis? Do you know him casually? Is he Mr. God to you? Way off and way aloof? Or are you like this with him? Jesus and I, we're close. Are you a casual acquaintance, a once a week kind of an acquaintance, or something that has, or the relationship is more in depth? So here's what he prays Help them to know you better as you reveal yourself to them. That's the essence of verse 17. Help them to know you better as you reveal yourself to them. In any relationship, it takes revelation. It takes revelation. You have to reveal yourself to a person in a relationship. And that's why some relationships fail. Because people will hold it all in. They'll never let you in. They keep up a guard. They keep up a veneer. I married a couple several years ago, many, many years ago. And I was having a conversation just the other day with a a mutual friend. And he said, and I remember as they were going through premarital counsel. It seemed to me that this couple wasn't opening themselves up, revealing who they really were to each other. And I cautioned them. They got married. On their honeymoon, as they're landing in Hawaii, she said to him, I want out. This is never going to work. I never wanted to marry you to begin with. Now, she put up a good front, but she had a veneer and didn't reveal herself to him All of those many months while they were dating. You can't have a relationship without revelation. And so that's why we need constant input of revelation from God. Or we're never going to know him. God wants to reveal himself to us. And as he does through his word, we grow to know him better. That's what he's praying for. Second thing he prays for, spiritual enlightenment to know God's plan. Not just his person, but what God wants. His plan for my life. Verse 18. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance or of his inheritance in the saints. Now, where it says here, the eyes of your understanding, it literally means the eyes of your heart. The eyes of your heart, literally, translated the eyes of your understanding. So often we think of the heart as the emotional center and the brain as the intellectual center. However, in ancient times, it was the heart that was the center of all of your thoughts, all of your intellect. The emotions were the bowels, the intestines. That's why in the old King James, it'll say being filled with bowels of mercy. Imagine having merciful bowels. 
And if you read that, you think, what on earth are they speaking about? Because ancient people believe that you feel the deepest emotions in the pit of your stomach, in your intestines. If you've ever had to get up and speak and you don't like to do that, you know how you feel butterflies? Right here. And so the heart was the mind. The emotions were considered to be in the intestine when it says Jesus had compassion on the crowd. The word that is used in Greek is splankna, which means the intestines. Jesus felt deeply for them. So what Paul is praying for is that the eyes of your heart, or the way you think, the eyes of your mind, your understanding, being enlightened that you may know the hope of his calling. One of the problems we have, by the way, is relying upon our emotions rather than the truth. Our emotions are very deceitful. They can lie to us. Our emotions have to be educated by the truth. Otherwise, if our emotion drives us, we'll be all over the place. We have to take the emotions and make them the caboose and what we know to be true from God's word is the engine driving the train. But today, that's not what's in. It's how do you feel? Well, I feel this way. How do you feel? So your feeling, your truth may be different than my truth. The issue isn't how we feel as much as what is the truth from God's word. And I'll tell you why it's important. Because I know Christians who say, but I don't feel forgiven. So? But I don't feel like God loves me. So? He said he loves you. Have you trusted Christ? Yes. Have you confessed your sins? Yes. Well, guess what? You're forgiven. But I don't feel that way. So what? You're being lied to. Don't trust your emotions. The truth, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Here's, here it is in the Amplified Bible. If you only knew the hope to which he has called you. You know, if we only knew what God has in store for us in the future, here and in heaven, it, it'll change the way we think about life and death. Like the little girl who looked up into heaven at the stars and she said, Grandpa, if heaven looks this good from the wrong side, what does it look like on the right side? Imagine the hope of his calling. By the way, heaven isn't just a destination. I think it's a motivation. The hope of his calling drives us on. Third prayer request, verse 18, the second part of it. Spiritual insight to know God's pleasure. I love this. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, verse 11 speaks of our inheritance, what we inherit, what's in our bank book. But here, verse 18 speaks of God's inheritance. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? In other words, if you only knew that God sees you as part of his wealth. If you only knew how much God values you. It's something we're not used to meditating on. We think God is worthy. He's worthy of all worship. And you're right, he is. But, but think of it from the perspective as scripture reveals it. You are valuable to God. God considers you his inheritance. Jesus dying on the cross, enabling you to be a child of God. You're his inheritance. You're valuable. If you ever doubt how valuable you are to God, if you ever say, I'm not good for nothing, you are deprecating God's property. 
All you have to do is look at the cross because God would give Jesus to make sure that you were his. That's how valuable you are. We all have heard the story growing up of the prince who did something wrong and was cursed and turned into a toad. Bummer. It's a riveting story. And there's only one solution. And the solution is that a beautiful princess could come along, must come along, and kiss the ugly, slimy frog, the toad, and he'd turn back into a handsome prince. It's a wonderful story if you're a toad. But think of it from the princess perspective. Imagine being a beautiful princess, all decked out. You got your makeup on. You smell great. You look great. And you see a toad. And you have to bend down and kiss that baby on the lips. God left heaven in the form of Jesus Christ and gave everything, poured himself out, Paul says in Philippians, to enable us to become children of God. Oh, it's great from our perspective. Salvation is a free gift. Hallelujah. But from God's perspective, you were so valuable that it cost him his son's life. And now he considers you his inheritance. That's why George Beverly Shea sings, even though he's in his 90s at the Billy Graham Crusades. Oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. Just to think that God loves me. You're God's property. One of my favorite old songs is by F.M. Lehman. And the words are this. The love of God is greater far than ink or pen could ever tell. It stretches to the farthest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You go home and contemplate on this verse tonight. You're part of God's inheritance. That's part of his prayer. Paul prays for you. Lord, help them understand how valuable they are to you. The final prayer, and we close with this, verse 19 through 23, for spiritual understanding to know God's power. He continues, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Look at verse 19. It says, the exceeding greatness of his power, verse 20, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heavenly places. I've stood at the Kennedy Space Center, and I marveled at that thing going up in the air. Incredible power. Four and a half million pounds has to be taken up through the Earth's atmosphere and defy gravity and push it 
into the outer limits where you don't have the constraints of gravity. It takes, and the engines produce, 7 million pounds of thrust, raw power, to eject that shuttle weighing 4.5 million pounds out into outer space. What power to take a shuttle from Earth to the outer atmosphere? Now think of the power it would take to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and to get him seated at the right hand of the Father. That's part of Paul's prayer. Lord, help them understand the power that is part of your exceeding power bank that enables them to be all that you want them to be. Help them to know your power. Help them to have understanding to know your power. By the way, the word power, dunamin, we get the term dynamite from it. Better translation, dynamic. Better translation, capacity. Capacity to be all that God wants you to be. God has given you. Yet, sometimes we say, I want more power. We even sing more power, more love, more power. Great song. But Paul is saying, you don't need more power. You got all you need. I just pray you just know what you got. And live with what you already have. It's in the bank book. God has given you the capacity to be all that he wants you to be. So what should our response be to all this? A couple of different things. Number one, rejoice in the benefits. You should be able to walk out of here tall, head hung high. I'm in Christ. I have this kind of power. He loves me that much. I'm this valuable to him. I want to know him more and more as he reveals himself to me. What a privilege. What an honor. Second, it should cause us to praise the benefactor. Not just rejoice in the benefits. Rejoice in the benefactor. Twice it's used in this passage to the praise of his glory. That's why we're going to close this service with praise because it's the natural response to a supernatural choice. The third thing, pray for understanding. Pray for understanding. Go home tonight and meditate on these verses of Scripture and ask God for the very same thing Paul prayed for, a deeper understanding to know God better, to know God's plan for your life, to know how valuable you are to him and to know the power that is in Christ to raise him from the dead and set him at the right hand of the Father. Guy went on a cruise, saved up his money, paid the ticket, was so excited. But he didn't know all the terms of the cruise. It was his first cruise, never been on one. He said, I saved up enough money to buy a ticket for the cruise, but I don't think I have enough money to pay for the food on the cruise. So he brought couple jars of peanut butter, jelly, crackers. And he was miserable the whole time because he saw people eating crab and lobster and steak and they were going back in line and all you could eat. And he would go to his room and have peanut butter and crackers and jelly. And finally, the third or fourth day, cruise is almost over. He went to one of the guys and said, look, I'll do anything. I'll go into debt. I'll work in the kitchen if I can also have some of the food. And the guy looked at him and said, What are you talking about? The food is part of the deal. You could have had food, all you can eat, all this time. But he didn't know what was his. He didn't know what was his. It's part of the ticket. Jesus gave you a ticket all the way to heaven. You have an incredible inheritance. We need to look in the book and see what's ours. Henry David Thoreau was right. He said, most men 
live lives of quiet desperation. Let's make it generic. Most people live lives of quiet desperation. Where's the excitement, the adventure? Buckle up. You're going on an adventure. Eugene Peterson writes, and I close, the puzzle is why so many people live so badly, not so wickedly, but so inanely, not so cruelly, but so stupidly. There's so little to admire and less to imitate in people who are prominent in our culture. We have celebrities, but not saints. Famous entertainers amuse a nation of bored insomniacs. Infamous criminals act out aggressions of timid conformists. Petulant and spoiled athletes play games vicariously for lazy, apathetic audiences. Aimless and bored, people amuse themselves with trivia and trash. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness gets any headlines. Hey, let's go on a new adventure together. A new adventure of righteousness, goodness. Let's see what's ours in Christ and get with it. Heavenly Father, we close in prayer tonight. So grateful for what your spirit reveals through Paul, your servant, to a church in Ephesus just about 2,000 years ago. Timeless truths that reveal your plan and his heartfelt prayer that these people would understand your plan. You chose us, Lord, before we were ever born, before we were ever, ever conceived or our parents were ever born or thought of. You chose us in Christ. And then we made a choice to follow you at whatever time in our lives. For some it was last week, for some it was a month ago or six months ago or years ago. But it's all part of your plan now, Lord. Help us to mature in the faith and understand who we are, what we have. And I pray for each one of us. I pray that we would understand more fully who you are, your person. We would understand more fully what you want, your plan for our lives. That we would understand more fully how valued, valued we are to you, Father, as your inheritance. And that we would know and understand the power that is ours in Christ, that we would experience and tap into the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Lord, some tonight need a healing. Some tonight, Lord, need victory in an area. Lord, release your power. You promised us, Lord, that same power that rose Jesus from the dead is that dynamic, that capacity to be all that we need to be. In Jesus' name, amen.